uh, it's an honor to be uh, with William Basinski uh, once again. And we have um, a conversation about music, and I wanted to start from the, the first time I met him. That was an occasion of uh, the release of uh, one of probably one of the most famous of a long series of works, which was called the Disintegration Loops series. And uh, back then, I was pointed to that by uh, an Italian guy, Giuseppe Ilasi, with whom I had a, a label, and we made a lot of money. <laughs> no, no, not <laughs> really, not really, <laughs> not really. And uh, and for the first time, the first time I've heard uh, Williams' music, I, I thought it was very um, uh, beautiful, but. Uh, with the passing of years, I think that it defined for me a form, let's say it, um, uh, like a, a wall dividing what was perceived to be the standard in electronic and experimental music, because it, back then it was, much of the style was process-based, uh, software-based, uh, non-personal, uh, aseptic, uh, I mean, I love them. I don't, this is not to be judgmental. Whereas I individuate in the work of uh, William Basinski and Finesse uh, a, sh a shift somehow in which uh, there's more of a focus on personal feelings, uh, remembrances, somehow also a mourning, if I may say that, towards a past. Uh, which was true and which was um, evolved in an overall culture of, uh, I don't know, of uh, melancholia, nostalgic, and uh, so there was, it was not very clear for me at the beginning, but then it was clear for me that it became one of the milestones of an era that uh, lasted at least 10 or 15 years. I don't know if you share this kind of uh, feelings. Well, it certainly was a moment in time that I was damn glad I had the tape recorders going <laughs> and the CD burners going because it was, you know, simply a process of archiving old t tape loops. And these, these tape loops the tapes themselves were old when I got them at a junk store in 1978 when I was 20 years old. And uh, so by 2001, when I had finally gotten a new technology CD burner, uh, I found these cases and cases full of the old loops and I started uh, with this one little container and it was at sort of a very low point in my life. I had uh, closed my shop I had for three years. Um, at the turn of the century and hadn't had much work. I was pretty broke. I was about to be evicted and um, didn't know what I was going to do, but it was a beautiful day and I I was freaking out, and I, so I pulled this little Alan Watts, The Way of Zen book out and sat in this 
you know, July summer in New York in my beautiful Baroque loft uh, and read it and I thought, oh, duh, use the time you have to get to work, get back in the studio and start where you left off. So I showed up for work and something amazing happened. And then after these tapes, these six different loops disintegrated in their own way, in their own time over a period of two-day recording session, you know, through the process, when I first started, I was making a, a new composition. This first loop, which became Disintegration Loop 1.1, was just so grave and so stately and just so beautiful. And I, I just thought, oh, boy, do I need this now. This is amazing. So I put a, I fired up my very rare um, analog Voyatra 8 synthesizer and tweaked out a really cool, random, arpeggiating, almost like French horn sounding counter melody. It was going really nice with the loop and so I started recording. You know, 15 minutes in, I start realizing, wait a minute, what's going on here? Something's changing. I'm looking in the tape path, there's dust. It's obvious the tapes are disintegrating. Um, so I knew I had to be very careful and make sure I'm recording and monitoring and, you know, just paying attention. And it just, you know, did the most incredible thing. So then I put on the next loop and got another little counter melody going because I didn't know it was going to do it again. I mean, the reason I was archiving these old tapes is because this is what happens to old tape. <clears throat> and I wanted to, you know, have, have be able to continue working with these things. And a particular thing about this series of loops that became the disintegration loops is that when I was, you know, 20, 21, when I was making all of these loops that are in my archive that I've been using as my patches, <clears throat> you know, throughout my career. When I was first starting, of course, I wanted to be very involved in the work. I, I made all kinds of sampled little bits of Muzak off the most powerful radio station in New York, in the top of the Empire State Building, and you could hear this, those thousand and one strings coming in through the wires we had running around our loft, whether it was the radio was on or not. So, and I loved strings, and I wanted a Mellotron, and I couldn't afford one, so I thought, well, maybe I can make one. Grab little bits of the strings and slow it down and see what you get. So I started to get amazing results, pulling music out of the air, you know, something from nothing. But I would, I wanted to work with them, you know, I wanted to mix them and, you know, I started doing stuff with shortwave radio, pulling atmospheric sounds out of the, from in between stations, out of the universe and mixing the loops and doing this kind of thing. 
some of these, when I was in my sampling mode, there was never even a word then called sampling. I didn't even know what I was doing, but I knew I was getting results I liked, so I just kept going. Um, but sometimes I would grab something, slow it down, and it would just be this unbelievably beautiful, eternal perfection that, you know, oh, well, we could just listen to this forever. This is perfect, you know. And I had enough composition training to know, well, that's done. But I didn't have enough confidence to know if I could call that my work at the time. So those kind of got set on the side. And uh, so the, the disintegration loops, the six different loops that became the disintegration loops, were ones that were set on the side. And they all came up together on that day in the studio. Same day? Yeah, one after another. And they, they were released just exactly the way they came up. And uh, the disintegration loops are uh, an example of one, the way you worked, um, studying, re-listening to your own older composition from another era, and uh, editing them and releasing them, make them new again, unavailable for a new public who wasn't exposed um, the first time. And when you hear that music, uh, what are the feelings? Do you recognize yourself there, or uh, oh how's, yeah, how's I mean, you know, work? it I mean, takes me because right because you're a self-archivist in a way. And, uh, I I don't listen to it that much anymore, but I love those pieces so much, and they're fascinating. And you know, the thing about the type of work I do. I mean, I I made this work for me. I made it for myself, and. I do these long, uh, eternal kinds of things. I mean, they, it would be 45 minutes. My single, a single would be 45 minutes because that's the side of a cassette. And then maybe I'd turn the cassette over and if it was really something that was really working and go ahead and go on the other side so you could have a, I think we had an auto-reverse cassette deck back then, so you could just have this thing that would just go forever and ever and ever. Like the river, for example, or something like that. That was my first, you know, long masterpiece, I think I can say. And um, I knew it at the time. We knew it when it was happening. I was tiptoeing around, had to go to the bathroom, and then, like walked past Jamie's painting studio and was like, He's like, <laughs> and so that was a magic moment, and you know, but um, that's what I need in the studio with my work. If I had to write down every note, I would be so bored. And this uh, is, is funny to me because when I went to the studio William had in Brooklyn and just said to me, this, it's not there anymore, called Arcadia, which was a beautiful place. Uh, there were sculptures and it was uh, a stage, maybe yeah. you had yeah, happenings and uh, events there. And there was always music playing because I, I came there two times and was always music playing and I ask you why. 
And you said, because sometimes, you know, I don't remember what's, you know, and I keep on playing and there's a point where I know that it's a good, it's a it's good done. Moment. Yeah, I have to see if it's, it's done. you know, if it's good enough. So I 20 was, years, yeah, it's good enough. <laughs> you can release it now. <laughs> Let the kids get a job, for God's sake. <laughs> so my, 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 my idea was how does uh, your music relates to space. Um, is there particular conditions in which you think that your music is best uh, experienced? For example, looped around in a house or in a concert hall. Do, do, do you have this in mind when you release new music? No. Not really? Not really, no. I mean, <coughs> I try to create the space within the music so that you can be in that space wherever you are, you know. It doesn't have to be in a particular kind of room or on particular kinds of speakers or, you know, equipment or anything like that. I mean, it's what's wonderful about touring is that when I go to a place like this, wonderful, you know, magic auditorium with all these fantastic technicians and, and sound arrays, I can get a chance to resonate a new space and hear the piece in a new way instead of just out of two speakers at home. And uh, also, you know, um, so every space is different. So when I come to a space, you know, I, I have a chance to have a sound check with uh, technicians for in each particular space, every space is different, every sound system is different, and get a chance to try to find how the room resonates and how the piece resonates in the room, and then we have to kind of adjust things. With no one in the room, knowing that when all the human beings are there in the room, it's gonna sound better because of all the water and blood in the bodies and it just uh, always makes things nicer but um, <clears throat> so yeah that's that's part of the touring All right. and uh, just just for people to know what is your background and uh, composition you studied music yes yeah, so I was yeah. I was trained on um, clarinet <coughs> excuse me my parents uh, I come from a family of five children, and my parents, you know, encouraged us all to study music. And when you got into the seventh grade, junior high school, we call it, there was an option to go into the choir or a band or whatever like that. So my mother wanted me to go into the choir, and I was like, no, I'm already getting beaten up because I'm such a flamboyant queen. <laughs> Please don't make me go into the choir. So she took me to the band director, and he was terrific, and he saw something in me. He's, he just decided I was gonna be his first chair clarinetist and the student conductor and the, you know, the drum major. And, and I really, you know, so this gave me something to kind of keep me out of trouble and concentrate on, and I really liked it. And uh, so I didn't have the best teacher, and she let me develop some kind of bad habits. But then we moved again, and we moved to Dallas. 
when I was started high school, and this, the music programs in Texas are off the charts, just incredible at the high schools. This high school had 3,000 students, and uh, the marching band had 300 people in it. And then there was a symphonic band, two symphonic bands, the first, the first one and then the junior one, and then there was a symphonic orchestra and jazz band. So I played in the symphonic band, and we were playing Hindemith and Pines of Rome and Capriccio Espanol, you name it, you know, all the big pieces. We had a very bombastic band director who was terrifying and rigid, and I had an amazing private teacher there who was like the former... Uh, Dean of uh, Indiana University, which is a very big music conservatory in the United States. And he was the sweetest man, and he got me to correct these bad habits that I had. And he also was working a side job at repairing woodwinds at this music store. And I had been mowing lawns and saving some money, and he found me uh, 1930s con pink lady big band tenor saxophone and fixed it all up for me and I think I you know paid with my own money $250 or something for it and so I got to be, you know because my teachers wanted me to be first chair clarinet at the New York Phil or something like that and I wanted to be David Bowie so that wasn't gonna happen but I got the saxophone and like when I was a junior we toured, this symphonic band toured all over the country and won all these contests and everything. And we got back, and then my band director wanted me to audition for my own seat the next year. And I was terrible at auditioning. I never won any all-state things because I was just such a nervous wreck. And um, so I screwed up the audition, and, um, and I was like, okay, put that idiot in first chair, let them do all the work. And I'm gonna play in the jazz band. So <laughs> he was furious about that. And then we won all the prizes that year, so. <laughs> After that I went to North Texas State University, which is a big band school. Very famous for its jazz, particularly big band jazz. And um, a couple of years before I was there, the one o'clock there was eight lab bands, starting at one in the afternoon, going to eight at night, and the one o'clock was the top one. Monster players, a lot of them professionals coming off the road from playing in famous big bands, just wanting to chill out, get stoned in this little town, and play killer music, and not have to get stupidity taxed because their shoes aren't shined and stuff. So. I didn't get any of those bands because I screwed up the audition. But that's where I switched my major to composition and that's where I started learning about John Cage and all the options that he opened up for someone that wanted to be a composer but didn't know, well, let's see, whole note, whole note, whole note, whole note. <laughs> Then it was like, oh, radio, you can have silence. We learned how to listen, how to really stretch our ears. So that got me started.
In fact, I would say that normally if, if I listen to your music, it's very easy. I don't want to nail it down uh, too easily, but of course, uh, minimalism comes to mind as a good definition to talk about it. But uh, minimalism is either connected to some form of uh, spirituality, which I was, I am, I still am very um, detached, ambiguous about it. I mean, I love Terry really, I love all the music, but uh, the undercurrent ideology, I would say, which is, you know, uh, I don't know, Californian. Oh, you mean new age music? Right. No. Counterculture. Or either a reaction to that, like Phil Niblock, who said, okay, what's the most material thing that I can do? And it's repeating itself. It's people working. So I'm going to do a video of, you know, some peasants walking in the soil. and oh, add. Phil Niblock. Yeah. Right, correct. Whereas I love Phil. you don't fit in either categories. And I would say to me, I'm not sure if you agree, you'd be more like uh, something that's uh, an emotional side or a, a narrative side. Yeah, um, I'm a romantic. Uh, like <laughs> Eno-esque, uh, obscure records. And, yeah. uh, so, and what would you say are your peers? What do you think it's, uh, would you say, recognizes your uh, peer musician or composers? Now you're going to put me on the spot. Um, well, peers, you mean like people now that are doing work that I like? Yeah. yeah. Well, I think um, someone who's terrific, and extremely prolific, and um, I think sadly under-recognized is Richard Chartier, good friend of mine also runs a very sophisticated sound art label called Line. Um, and he has a terrific side project that he does called Pink Courtesy Phone. Uh, he's terrific. We've done a couple of records together. I love Richard's work. Uh, Franz Jobin in uh, Montreal is also extraordinary. You know her work? Um, love her. Uh, Lawrence English in, uh, from Brisbane, not only a fantastic composer, but just a doctorate of philosophy, brilliant polymath, brilliant, brilliant guy. Also has a label for 20 years called Room 40 that releases all kinds of my peers. Um, Francisco Lopez, I mean, you name it. These guys pretty much release everybody that's sort of in my field. Um, there's so many more. And I get to meet these people on the road, and then we become friends. Uh, you know, Tim Hecker, um, of course, Karsten Nikolai and, uh, is absolutely brilliant. And the stuff he's done with Sakamoto is so good. Did you hear um, Glass? Yes, I did. The Im improvisation they did live with a small audience at 
um, the Glass House in Connecticut. And uh, it's a beautiful record. And um, how would you say that the uh, composing-wise, technically-wise, as your um, composing changed or adjust to new technology, or are you curious uh, or still use the same ways you were um, using, I don't know, in the early 2000s, or in which <laughs> ways it's changing? Well, I'm an old dog. Year of the Diamond Dogs, 1958, and we don't learn new tricks. But I have an incredible young engineer that I work with now, Preston, who knows all the new tricks. And he knows what I like, and he knows how to get what I want. And so he's been invaluable help to me the last couple of years with, you know, I've never been a gearhead. I've never been a, ooh, you know, I'm not an Ableton whiz, let's just put it that way. I know how to do what I need to do to do what I want, but he can really help me like try some different things and show me some tricks, and I'm like, okay, just do it. You know, <laughs> that sounds good. You're not you don't it, teach you're me, not just curious? do it. You're not curious no, to get not anymore. Hands on? No. Okay. No, but but I am curious in the way that you know, when it's time to do a new piece, then it's like, what am I going to do? So, although I have my techniques and my um, processes and things, I don't always do the same thing. So it depends on what the first spark is and like, well, where is this going to go? How can we make this do something? So. Okay. Okay, great. So, um, what I think is going to be the last question for me is, would you mind expanding a little bit about this project you're presenting tonight? Uh, it's born. On time, out of time. Uh, I don't know. I didn't see the catalog. Does it, does it describe the piece in there? I don't know what I did with the... I might have to read it because it's, <laughs> no, <coughs> it's in Italian. Now this piece started out um, as a collaboration with my dear friends, the art scientists, brilliant art science couple, uh, Dimitri Gelfand and Evelina Domnich. And they were working in Los Angeles at Caltech with these scientists uh, working on a new project they were doing, exploring liquid dynamics. I don't know how to talk about what they do. They can talk about it beautifully, but they find ways in, with their installations to show things like black holes, like how you can see, it. in this one piece, they create this wave machine that creates two uh, diametrically opposed whirlwinds, you know, um, vortices in the water, and you can see how they connect underneath, like a wormhole, for example, or something like that. So they wanted me to 
uh, create an uh, some music for this installation at this big art science exhibition at the um, Martin Gropius Bow last summer, I think it was. And so I did, and then their scientist friends they were working with were involved with the um, the laser interferometer installations in um, United States. It's called LIGO, L-I-G-O dot org. I can't remember exactly what it stands for, but basically there are these two huge vacuum chambers underground, the largest in the world, one's in the southeast and one's in the northwest, and they're listening to see if they can hear a gravitational wave. A gravitational wave is a, basically a rift in space-time. They woke up one morning and they had gotten something on their tapes. And it was basically the sound of two massive black holes colliding 1.3 billion years ago. And it, you know, picked it up on these interferometers. Um, so they they manipulated the recording so that you could hear it, and they um, gave me some of these recordings to work with. And because Evelyn and Dimitri and the curators of this show wanted me to do a concert also, besides the installation. So, so I got to start with these incredible, really like clicks, you know. And, um, and then just imagine using my techniques and my sense and my loops and my stuff. What to me was like a very romantic love story. I mean, these lovers, created a rift in space-time. I think it, the, the amount of energy released when they fucked was basically more than all the stars in the universes. So it was pretty big. <laughs> pretty big love. So anyway, this piece is uh, starts out very kind of obscure and droney, and then it opens up, and then it kind of gets very romantic at the end. Second part's called the lovers. It was um, I, I forgot to ask you something. This is very egoistical of me because it's my curiosity, but I have to ask. Since you said you wanted to be David Bowie, but then you did a record on David Bowie after his death. What's yeah. your relationship? Just because I'm in a period in which I'm obsessing with him, <laughs> yeah. keep on listening you know, yeah. all the time. I know. I just I know. To, to know. Why do we have to live in a world without him? But we have his music, yeah, thank yeah, God. We have to. Well, uh, I met him once. Really? Yeah, in 1983, I was playing in an English rockabilly band that were on RCA. They were called the Rock Cats, R-O-C-K-A-T-S. Now, they kind of flamed out shortly after that, and the Stray Cats came in and kind of took that new wave rockabilly thing and went with it. But they were more professional. They, I think his 
dad was in the music industry or something like that. The Rock Cats were English boys. They dress apart. They were beautiful. They were really good. But I think they might have had some drug problems or something. And then also, they didn't really, they were with RCA, and RCA wanted hits, and they weren't really writing original hits. They gave them a couple of chances. But anyway, at this time, I'd met them at MTV. No, we were, it was at the RCA building. We, we were doing, MTV had just started. And some college buddies of mine called me out of the blue wanting to know if I wanted to be in a video for this, English, this other English pop star on RCA playing the saxophone and keys, you know, lip syncing, blah, blah, blah. They would basically have five bands come through these sound stages, three cameras, you got to go through it twice, you did your own hair and makeup and costume, and then the next band came on. So when I was there with these guys, the Rockettes were there, and I had seen them in San Francisco a few years before, and I loved them. And, uh, I went up and talked to Smutty Smith. It was this beautiful bass player. He's the first person I ever saw that had whole sleeves of tattoos on his arms and really, really pretty. And um, he was really nice. I was doing a rockabilly look at that time too. I had a big black quiff and he was helping me with my quiff and we were talking and I said, you know, Smutty, you're a rockabilly band, but you don't have a saxophone player. Hello? Here's my number, I'm your boy. He's like, Billy, you're right. Let's go talk to Dibs. So we went to talk to the, the lead singer and they took my card and they eventually called me. To, they were gonna do some shows at big places in New York, like Peppermint Lounge and the Ritz. And so I went and, uh, you know, to a rehearsal, learned the stuff and so I was in. So we did these shows, and then in August that year, I got a call at this store I was working at, in this little Italian jeans shop called Ciccio Bello. They had all the cutest, most colorful denim in the 80s, and yeah, I used to sell that stuff. And um, it was Jamie, and he said, Billy, call Smutty, here's the number. Billy, do you want to go with us to Hershey, Pennsylvania and open for David Bowie? I was like, hell yeah, really? Yeah. Patty Smythe of Scandal was gonna do it, but she got sick and so they called the Rockettes. So we got to go down there. 30,000 people. Thank God they had a chain link fence in front of the stage because they were throwing shit. Nobody wants to see an opening band for Bowie, come on. <coughs> but once I did my big saxophone solo, they stopped throwing things and they cheered and so that was nice. And then we got off and I had a recently done shortwave music and I had a cassette with me that I wanted to try to get to Bowie somehow. So I was talking to his manager and he was real nice and I said, would you, you know, give this to Mr. Bowie, and I'm sure it's really tripped out, and I, maybe he could listen to it on the plane or something, and he, I'm sure he'll like it. He's like, oh, I'm sure he's gonna love it. Would you like to meet him? 
I was like, yes. <laughs> he says, all right, he's coming on. Stay here in the wings. He, he's coming on in a minute. So I stood there with my saxophone, and here comes David Bowie, the yellow suit, the yellow pompadour, yeah. Serious Moonlight Tour, 1983. Hello, Billy. Wonderful sax work, mate. I could hear it back in the dressing room. Sounds great. How you doing? Ooh, great. <laughs> well, the boss is waiting. Got to get on, get to work. Would you like to watch from the wings? And I was like, yes, please. <laughs> so that was my meeting with David Bowie. And he was just as lovely and sweet as everybody says he so it's true. is. Yeah. Nice. Uh, and this is a saxophonist, so he knew what he was talking about. I mean, yeah. he was a, yeah. Yeah. So was a and he's not a very good saxophonist, but. It's not. But. Too bad. But he has. Uh, he, he could do a couple of things, you know. I was a better sax player. Nice. Okay. But, I mean, he's David Bowie, forget about it. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> this is all recorded. I know. <laughs> okay, so. Um, Thank you, William. Thank you for, uh, for, for the talk. And I invite everybody of you to stay for, for the gig, uh, which is going to happen at 9 o'clock here. Valerio Tricoli is opening, and then William Basinski. Thank you very much. Thank you.